Every one of those dots is a church, but they're just buildings. When did church become synonymous with buildings instead of people? When did church become something we go to, worship in, and then leave? Take away every church building in the world and the church will remain unchanged. Church is people. We see church every day, everywhere, and don't even know it. We see it in unexpected acts of kindness, in small moments of service and love. We see church in welcoming smiles, but also in grimaces of pain, burdens that are borne by friends. The real church is rarely flashy or eye-catching. What if we saw a church for what it is? What if we dreamt about the kind of church that we could be together? Let's talk about the church that we want to be, the church that God is calling us to be. When I look at us, I see past the buildings. I see a church. Well, hey, everybody. Good to see you this weekend. Glad you're here. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us uh, right now from an off-site campus or on the internet, especially those of you at our Sea Island campus. This is the grand opening. Let's give it up for them. All right. All right. I also uh, just want to say this is a big Sunday uh, for the ARC, the Association of Related Churches. Uh, you guys are very involved in that, whether you know it or not. We give toward it and we contribute and pray for. And um, uh, this weekend, we are launching 16 brand new life-giving churches in Ohio, Georgia, Texas, South Carolina, Virginia, North Carolina, Florida, Alabama, Illinois, uh, did I say Virginia? I'll say it again, Virginia, Tennessee, Minnesota, and California. This weekend... We're launching brand new churches. So uh, here's what I'd like to do. I want to I pray. Can you join me in praying for those new churches? God, I thank you uh, for your church. And God, I thank you this week that there are 16 art churches that are launching in communities that need life-giving churches. God, I pray that you would draw people uh, that need uh, to be a part of that type of church. God, I pray for the leaders, the pastors, the teams uh, that you would encourage them, that you would give them your uh, wisdom, your strength, and that your kingdom would come today, and that people would come to know you. In your name we pray, amen, amen. Really am excited about that, and I'll try to update you and let you know a little bit uh, about how that goes. We've got 48 churches launching in the next uh, 10 weeks, and uh, 16 of them this weekend. Well, you know, speaking of church, uh, church has kind of gotten... Uh, a bad rap uh, recently, would you agree? A little bit of bad PR. Um, Catholic Church, uh, we know over the last decade or so, has really been fighting uh, some, some challenging things that are very real uh, and uh, have been problematic to the church. Uh, the, the Catholics don't have the corner of the market on it, though. Evangelical churches, uh, especially evangelical pastor scandals, and uh, extravagance, and this, that, and the other. And then you've got uh, disgruntled Christian celebrities kind of piling on a little bit. In fact, I was reading uh, not too long ago about a popular Christian writer and speaker, really liked this guy's books, but he revealed uh, just a few weeks ago that he doesn't attend church anymore. 
He doesn't attend a local church. He said uh, it's really not interesting to him. He said he feels like he's graduated from the local church and that a cup of coffee uh, with friends at Starbucks occasionally is good enough for him. And he said, why do I need a church these days? I thought, wow. Then I thought, well, maybe, maybe you or a friend of yours has, has asked the same question uh, recently. Why church? You know, it may be because at some point you were hurt uh, by another Christian. You were hurt by a group of people. Or maybe you had a pastor who made some choices at some point that uh, discouraged you, disgusted you, or just maybe they let you down in some way. Or maybe you just don't see the relevance of it anymore and, and you find yourself or you have a friend that finds himself asking, why church? About a week ago, I was in Los Angeles, California, and I was at, at an art, art meeting and um, uh, I had a, a, about three hours in the afternoon that I was free, and, and so I took a little drive from downtown over to Santa Monica, which is a place where I lived for a little while. In fact, I was on staff. It was, I think, my first or second staff position um, as, a, as, a, as a youth pastor. I got fired three times as a youth pastor. It wasn't a good run. But uh, um, there, there was this little church in Santa Monica, West L.A., uh, just right off of Santa Monica Boulevard, and, um, and the church is still there. I mean, everything's grown up around it. There, there's these glass skyscrapers. You've got this little church they've never sold because the real estate's so valuable, and, you know, where else would they, where else would they build? And I pulled out in front of that church, and I just sat there, and I, and I just watched it for a little while and just kind of went back, you know, down memory lane a little bit. And there were some good memories, but mostly really bad memories at that church. I mean, I saw things that you should never, you should never see in a church. I saw Christians act in ways, my house was egged during a church service one day by some Christians, and it wasn't like, oh, let's have fun and egg Greg's house. It's, we don't like Greg or what he represents. It wasn't really me, I was fairly new. It was the pastoral team there. Um, I, one, one day during a service, I won't get into it, uh, because um, I, I don't want you to have this vision of me. But anyway, at, during a church service, it got really crazy, and people started standing up and yelling things. And a guy yelled something about somebody I loved right next to me during a Sunday morning service. And I stood up and cocked my fist to hit him. And it scared me to death. It scared. I thought, in church, in church, I almost did something I'd... Uh, uh, just uh, horrified me. Uh, later that day, the denomination came in and um, relieved the entire pastoral staff of their responsibilities, and, uh, and the church split, and it was just terrible. It was nasty. I remember flying back to Denver, Colorado after that experience, asking myself that same question, why church? I mean, why do I need this? And yet, as I sat there, just a week ago and looked at that building, um, I, I thought, God, why didn't I just leave? And God, why is it that the church is like the central part? I love the church. I, I tell you guys all the time, I love being your pastor, and I do. So how did we make the leap from there, uh, where, where we were, um, to here? The next six weeks, we're in a series called I See a Church. I'm excited about it. 
I hope that you'll be able to be a part of it and that you can be a part of uh, small groups that are going on to kind of discuss our experience together and our journey together. But this week, I'm going to talk specifically about why church. Now, when we looked at this a few weeks ago, I thought I was tempted to answer the why church question from strictly a consumer point of view. And, uh, you know, kind of one of these three reasons you need the church, three reasons why the church is good for you. In fact, I was in China and I asked my friend uh, Peter Haas, some of you know Peter, he, he wrote a book called Pharisectomy, Eliminating Religious Diseases in Your Life. And he's brilliant, he loves statistics, and I knew that, and I said, Peter, I'm doing a series on why church, and my first one, or a message on why church, can you get me some statistics on why people should go to church? And so he did. And he wrote a blog post actually on it. And it's called, it says five statistical benefits for those who attend church. Number one, significantly lower risk of depression. They, they, uh, a University of Saskatchewan study found that the incidence of clinical depression was 22% lower in those who attended church regularly. Number two, better life and time management. Another study found that people who attend church have a better ability um, uh, to manage time and achieve their goals. Um, and so that was cool. Number three, uh, better grades and higher education prospects. Uh, this study uh, found, and I'm not, I'm not giving you the names of all of the studies. I can point you to Peter if you'd like to. I can't pronounce some of them. But uh, this one found that church attendance is correlated with a higher math and reading scores and greater educational aspirations. In fact, church attenders are more likely to complete homework and degree programs. Isn't that amazing? You know, tell that to your kids, all right? These are regular attenders. Number four, significantly lower risk of death and longer life expectancy. Now, don't get me wrong. The death rate for Christians is hovering right around 100%, just like it is for everybody else, okay? But apparently, some people live longer. And what this study found is that those who go to church more than once a week actually live longer than those who even attend just once a week who live longer than those who don't attend church. In fact, in this study, they found a 25% um, uh, uh, fluctuation or difference, a reduction uh, in mortality. I don't know how that worked. Whatever. Anyway, it's in there. Um, and, and it's incredible. But number five is that they found that Christians have better sex lives. Yeah, I'm just going to read this one because I don't want to comment on it. It says this. It says, a recent University of Chicago study known as the most comprehensive and method methodically sound, I'm nervous about this, sex survey ever conducted found dramatically higher rates of the big O in women who attend church services religiously. That's what it says. I didn't say that. That's what it says right here. It says, this was echoed by a 1940s Stanford University study, now that's not recent, and a 1970s Red Book ma uh, magazine study all found higher levels of sexual satisfaction among women who attend religious services religiously. This was actually cited from an article called Revenge of the Church Lady, USA Today <laughs> com. So, how many of you think that being happier, healthier, and having a better sex life is a good enough answer to why church? All right, let's just go to response time right now. That's good. Save ourselves some time. 
And I thought about doing that, you know, the benefits. But then I thought, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's approach this question rather, from, rather than from our consumer point of view, from God's point of view, okay? Why church according to the guy that created the universe? And I thought what I'd do, there's so much scripture on it, but I, I, I'm going to kind of keep it to uh, a, a passage in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. We're going to pull out three principles from there. Before we read that passage out loud together, let's talk about Hebrews just for a minute. Uh, the author of Hebrews, anybody know who the author of Hebrews was? Nobody does. <laughs> yeah, nobody, really, people have argued down through the years, and nobody really knows it's an anonymous book. Nobody knows. We do know when it was written. It was written somewhere between 60 and 70 A.D. Most people pinpoint it at about 68 A.D. Now, let me tell you why that's important. It's about 35 years uh, after 30, uh, something like that, 35 years after Jesus uh, died and rose again. Um, it was a crazy, crazy time in the world. Crazy time in the world. In fact, in 64 AD, Nero, who was this uh, crazy guy that ruled Rome, uh, burned Rome down and blamed it on the Christians. And because of that, there was incredible persecution. Christians were crucified everywhere. In fact, Paul and Peter both uh, uh, were martyred uh, in Rome uh, in about 64 to 66 AD. And, and so in 68 AD, it's just a crazy political time. And then what they don't know is that just in two years, life would change entirely. That Jerusalem would be wiped out and that the temple, which was the symbol of the presence and power of Jesus, where all of the Jews and still Christians who attended synagogues and, and, and uh, worshipped in the, in the temple area, uh, it would be totally destroyed, totally destroyed in just two years, okay? And so it's a crazy time. Would you agree we live in a little bit of a crazy time right now? That's why I thought this might be a real good subject for us to come up next to, why church? Let's read Hebrews chapter 10. And verse 23 through 25. In fact, let's read it out loud together. Here and in the campuses. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, okay? So you know what the, what the context of, what, 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 what their lives were like, what their lives were like, and here's the instruction. And so let's pick up kind of three, three God perspectives on why church. Here's the first one, because Jesus died for it. Because Jesus died for it. The first verse says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm. What, what is the hope that we affirm? What is the hope that they affirmed and that we affirmed? Here, here's the hope. It's that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again. That because of that, we can have eternal life. That every night, regardless of what you're work situation is, regardless of what your home situation is, may be great, it may be not so great. 
But you can go to bed at night, lay your head down on a pillow and know that if you don't wake up tomorrow, you will wake up in eternity with God because of Jesus Christ. If you have committed your life to him, if you have, if you have faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, that's the hope says that we, that we unswervingly hold on to and what we profess because uh, God can be trusted to keep his promise. And then if you just backed up just a few verses in Hebrews 10, it kind of amplifies it a little bit, what he's talking about specifically. He says, and so dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place Because of what? Because of the blood of Jesus. Jesus died for us. He died for the church. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Now, there's a lot of Old Testament imagery there, but basically it's saying that Jesus died so that we have access to God and that we have eternal life. Um, Not long ago, I was talking to... to, um, a guy that lives in another country. And uh, we, we were having a conversation about the church. We're always, always, or also having a conversation about America. And he said, you know, I'm amazed. It was not long after July 4th. He said, I'm amazed by the American celebration of July the 4th. And I said, really, they don't like do that? In, I knew they didn't do that in their country. That's uniquely American. But they don't have that type of a celebration in their country. He said, no, I mean, we've got things, but it's, he said, there's just an enthusiasm. I mean, there's, you know, they run the flag up, they have little parades, there's hot dogs. I mean, everybody celebrates July the 4th. He said, why, why do you think that is? And, and I thought about it. I really hadn't thought about it that much. But I thought, you know, I think part of it is because we know that people died because they believe in freedom. And, they, and we celebrate the fact that, that people gave their lives because of our freedom. We do that in other holidays, you know, Memorial, Memorial Day and other holidays also. And I, I'm just crazy this way, I know, and everybody isn't. But when I look at a flag, I don't think about what's wrong with America. I just don't. I think about the people that died so that I could be free. That's what I do. And when when I think about the church and I look at the church, I don't think about what's wrong with Christianity because there's plenty that's wrong with Christianity. But I think about who died so that I could experience freedom. See, Jesus died so that we could be free. Jesus died so that we could have eternal life. Don't ever forget that. And then in Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, it talks a little bit more about what he did for us. And this is a passage that's talking about husbands and wives, okay? And specifically husbands. And he says, for husbands, this means love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean and washed by the cleansing of the word. Now, there's a lot to that, and I'm not going to explain it. But basically on its service, it says this, Jesus died for the church. You cannot separate Jesus from the church. You can't love Jesus and not love his bride. You know, there's a Gandhi quote, and I've used it, and I 
frankly, as I was studying for this message, I, I want to repent for some of the ways that I've used it. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, a, a, it's something Gandhi said, and Gandhi was a great man and, and helped to liberate and bring freedom uh, to India. Uh, Gandhi was a Hindu, and he said this about Christians. He said, one time he said, I like your Jesus, but I don't like your Christians. He said, I like your Jesus, but I, I, I've got some real problems with Jesus' followers. And, and, and over the years, I, I would agree. You know, I mean, how do you agree that um, there are some squirrely Christians? Anybody? Uh, don't point. There really are. There's just some... There's some Christians that, you know, you just got to love them by faith, you know. There are Christians that do weird and embarrassing things. Most Christian movies, in my opinion, are kind of strange. Some of the music's kind of strange. There are people that don't act very Christ-like. And Gandhi said, I, li- I like your Jesus, but I don't like your, your, your Christians. Uh, here's the challenge that I have with that. Gandhi and others, much more recently, because uh, that's kind of a popular thing to say these days. We're very spiritual, even if we're not, you know, churchgoers or whatever. But, uh, but, but the Gandhi and, and others, they like the pop culture Jesus, not the real life Jesus. See, the real life Jesus, if you study him, he calls sinners to repentance. He claimed to be the unique son of God. And he died for our sins. The pop culture Jesus, kind of the Jesus is a guru Jesus, kind of like Bono in a bathrobe, you know, it's, it's cool and there's, you know, flower in the hair and all that kind of thing. I mean, Jesus was cool, but Jesus was direct. Jesus was clear. Jesus was challenging. See, um, the church is called the bride of Christ. And you can't separate Jesus from the bride. You can't say, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. I just don't think you can do that. I don't think you can do that. In fact, early on in this church, there was somebody that wanted to to be close friends with me, and he didn't like my wife. And I don't understand that. Usually it's the other way around. People like Debbie, and they put up with me. That's just honest. Those of you who've been around for a while, you know that's the truth. This particular individual had a problem with my wife, and they wanted to, they just wanted to be really close to me. And I told them one day, I said, you know what, you can't be my friend. Because if you don't like my wife, you can't be my friend. You can't be close to me. That's just the way I am. You don't have to be that way. But I'm kind of black and white on that. And I think it's the same with Jesus. You can't love Jesus and talk bad about his bride. Let me give you one more scripture in here. This is in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. This is where the Apostle Paul is having one last kind of sit down uh, with the elders of the Ephesians church, which is just a great church. And he he knows he's never going to see him again, and he says this. He says, so guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock. I can almost see a tear in his eye on this whole thing, because these guys were close. They were together for three years, and uh, and he's telling them, guys, you got to be good pastors. He said... His church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you elders. And here's what he's saying, and I've, I've given this speech to young pastors many times. Pastors, never forget, Jesus died for his church. 
There will be some Christians in the church that will be easy to love. There will be some that cause you to love them by faith. There will be some sheep that bite. Some of them have a taste for shepherd. Some of them are rabid. <laughs> love them. Shepherd them. And remember that they were purchased by his blood. You can't separate Jesus and the church. I know I'm weird like this, but I go to church when I'm on vacation. I'm not saying that to put anybody else down. You probably shouldn't, especially when you do what I do, but I just do, okay? And I, usually I go to two or three different churches on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon or Saturday night when I'm on vacation because I want to see what other people do. And normally I like to go to churches that are totally different than ours. I don't want to go to another kind of seacoast-like church or whatever. I go to churches where they don't believe the same thing a lot of times. Uh, where they certainly don't worship the same way. And, and, and the reason I do, I just, I, I just I kind of want to see what's going on. But it's also a test to see if I look at them as adversaries or if I look at them as dead or if I, if I, if I have these kind of thoughts in my mind or if I see them as sheep that Jesus died for that are different than me. Why church? Why prioritize an hour on the weekend? Because Jesus died for it. Do you get that? Jesus died for the church. Let me give you another one. Another reason uh, why church is because you're a necessary part of it. You are a necessary part of it. The second verse, or, well, actually, we'll get to that in a minute. Let me, let me look at 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27. It says, all of you together, and he, if he was at Seacoast, as Paul's writing this, he would be saying this to you. All of you together are Christ's body, and each one of you is a separate and necessary part of it. He's saying you're all, you're all important. Your service is essential to the body of Christ. Each of us has a role to play, and every role is, is, is important. There's no such thing as small service to God. It all matters. I tried to think about, how could I illustrate this? Uh, Debbie um, about a year ago, I think, uh, went with our daughters to a sale. Now, when she goes to a sale, that means it's going to cost me money. The, the savings is uh, on whatever it is. You, you understand what I'm saying, okay? And so this was like an, uh, where they sell lights. There's apparently somewhere here in town that every year sells lights, and they're a fraction of what they cost or whatever. And so she comes home with, and I don't even know how she got it home, but this monster light. This thing's huge. It's four feet, four feet all the way around. And uh, she said, uh, this is going in the dining room. We have a small dining room. Could you put it up? Now, you have to understand that I am mechanically challenged. Uh, it was, uh, I, no, I couldn't do that. And fortunately, I have friends who are contractors and electrical people. We got a whole crew over there, you know, jacked it up, got it up there. And I've got a picture of it. Do, do you have a picture of it? Okay, there it is. I mean, it's huge. The room is that size. Okay, there's about a foot on each side of the room. It's huge, but she's happy. Now, I hope she'll speak to me after this message is over. Why I wanted to say that is that's not necessarily the most important light in our room or in our house. It's the most visible light. I would argue that this one right here is the most important one. This is a fancy night light. This keeps me from stubbing my toe. 
how many, how many of you know that there is a case that this might be more important than that light? They're all important. Some are more visible. And Paul is saying in the church, same way. Some of us are more visible, but we're all important. We all do our job. A healthy church is a church where everybody does what God's created them to do. Everybody serves. Too often, hey, praise God, praise God, praise God. It's football kickoff weekend in the NFL. Let's just worship that just for a minute. But too often, too often, the church is like a football, a football stadium, you know? If you watch football this weekend, there will be 22 men on the field, in desperate need of rest, being cheered on by 80,000 people in the stands in desperate need of exercise. This is not how it should be, okay? This is not how the church should be. <laughs> Chuck Colson, who went to be with the Lord uh, fairly recently, he spoke at our church. He's a guy that got a second chance. Incredible thinker. On the subject of church, he said this, it's easy to be down on the church, it's easy to find its faults, but when you become a believer, you become the church, he said. I've always resented the phrase, where do you go to church? He said, I'm a member of a church. I don't go to a country club, I'm a member of a country club. I'm not talking about where you go, I'm talking about where you plant your flag and say, this is where I'm a Christian. Can I just say this to you here and at the campuses, wherever you might be? If God has led you to this church, you say, well, how do I know that? Well, he has, okay? I mean, it's set up all kind of stuff. People ask you to come, circumstances in your life. God's led you to this church. I challenge you, get planted. We need you. We need, we need you whether you're a great big light bulb who's up here on the stage or whether you're a nightlight who's serving in an area that's desperately needed by us. We need you. Everybody. Everybody. So how, how do you get involved? Well, I'm glad you asked. We have this thing called Inside Track. And at every campus, it begins this weekend where you kind of find out who Seacoast is, who you are, how you might best fit. And I challenge you, your campus pastor is going to talk to you about that. But get, get plugged in, get involved. Hebrews 10.24 gives you a specific assignment. It says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Imagine. Imagine a church full of people who instead of complaining about what they don't like, I don't like the music, it's too loud, air conditioning's not right, air conditioning should be working more, it's too cold in here, I wish they had better coffee. Why do they do Starbucks? You know, all that, it doesn't happen here. It happens in other churches where I travel around. <laughs> but imagine a church, instead of complaining about what they don't like. They're thinking up ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. That's the church that Jesus died for. So why church? Why prioritize an hour on Sunday? Because Jesus died for it. Because you're a necessary part of it. And let me give you one more, and that's this. Because the times that we live in demand it. They demand it. He says, let us not give up the habit of meeting together as some are doing. Instead, let us encourage one another all the more since you see that the day of the Lord is coming near. This is the money verse. Apparently, some of those who were a part of that church in the first century 
started strong. They were, they were excited to be gathered together, um, and they were doing it regularly. It was habitual. In other words, it was on the calendar. This is what I do when the church gathers, I gather. But some weren't doing it anymore. Some of them, it was because of persecution. It was a terrible, terrible time. Reminds me of the Iraqi Christians and Oh, my, my heart hurts for it. You, you ask, what are we doing for that? We've got a partner there that I can't talk a whole lot about that we're feeding money into and they're feeding supplies to our Christian brothers and sisters in that area. And we need to be, <clears throat> and we need it right there where it's happening. And we need, we, need to be, we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters. But some, maybe it was because of persecution. Some, it was just a crowded schedule. And some, it was just a cold heart. And Paul says, you guys, you gotta, you got to be meeting together. Now, the word for meeting together doesn't refer to three, three friends at a Starbucks reading scriptures. I'm thankful for that. I go to the Starbucks next door. I see you guys all over. It is so cool. But that's not what this scripture refers to. This word refers to a formal gathering of God's people for worship. Justin Martyr, who was a writer in the second century, he was a second century Christian, describes an early worship service. He says, on the day called Sunday, all who live in the countryside and in the city gather together for worship. Writings of apostles or prophets are read, the scriptures, and then the president or pastor applies them to everyday life. And then we stand and offer prayers, and sing bread and wine, and worship together. They had a response time back in the second century. That's kind of cool. So what is the day of the Lord? He says, do it even more. Encourage one another as the day of the Lord comes. What does that refer to? Three possible things. Probably all three of these. Number one, your own impending mortality. In other words, the day of the Lord is the day that you stand before the Lord. Someday you're going to die. You're going to stand before the Lord. And you're going to be judged uh, based on whether or not um, you're kind of accounting for your own sin or you're saying I've got my faith in Jesus and he died for my sin. And you'll also be accounted for your works and, uh, and, and there'll be a judgment time. And so he says, Hebrews, you need to live like you're dying. You need the church. The second uh, day of the Lord concept is a coming physical disaster. What they were referring to is in... in um, <clears throat> In, in Matthew chapter 24, in one of Jesus' last discourses with his disciples, uh, some of them asked, um, you know, what's going to be happening? You know, what, when he's, he's explained he's coming back, what, when's that going to happen? What's the end of times and all that? And he describes a physical disaster that's going to happen. The Hebrews don't know it, but it's going to happen in about two years. And it was the d- destruction of Jerusalem, that their entire life uh, was, was going to change. And they said, and the writer says, you know, in times that we live in today, you need the church. We need the church. I'll never forget the days after 9-11-2001 when we were so very aware of our mortality and of our vulnerability as a country and, and, um, and churches were open and packed and and, uh, and we get a, a, away from that, and sometimes we, we forget that we live in a crazy world. And then in times like right now, we understand that. This week, we face the anniversary of 9-11 again. I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying that, um, 
that, um, that God's will will be done and that uh, all around the world that there will be peace and safety, but we live in a crazy world. And then the third thing is referring to the day of the Lord is the day the Lord returns, the day that God releases his wrath on his enemies. You know, sometimes we say, why hasn't God dealt with those guys in Iraq? Why, why, why is, you know, are there evil people here in America and God hasn't dealt with it? And I can't tell you exactly, but I do know this. I know that the Bible says that, that God is being patient. And I don't like patience. And I cer- certainly don't understand all of God's ways. But he's saying that God is being patient, but there is coming a day when his wrath will be poured out in ways that you cannot even imagine on his enemies. And that the, the scales will be balanced and will understand. And that day is the day that the Lord returns. And in Hebrews, uh, he's saying, in times like that, you need the church as that day grows closer. Well, here's a question. Are we living in the end times? There was an article this week by Franklin Graham, and he said this. I'll just read a little bit of it to you. As you watch the news, do you feel as I do that it seems that the world is coming apart at the seams? There appears to be no end of bad news. The killing of Christians by Muslims from Indonesia to Bangladesh to Pakistan. China tearing down church buildings. Christians tortured, beheaded, crucified in Iraq with villages burned, churches destroyed. Much the same in Syria. In Iran, there are pastors who are imprisoned for their faith. Throughout North Africa, the Middle East, and many parts of the world, the Church of Jesus Christ and anyone or any group who bears his name is under attack. In our own country as well, there's great opposition to the Church of Jesus Christ. We see this through the media, entertainment industry, government, and politics. Then he refers to Matthew 24, where the disciples asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming? Jesus said there would be wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and pestilence. I wonder if he could have been referring to something like Ebola. He said, verse uh, 9, chapter 24, then you will be arrested and persecuted and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. He said, those will be the days of the coming of the Lord. Are these the days that Jesus was speaking about? It could be. I don't know. Here's what I do know. I know, church, we need each other. I know that we need the encouragement that comes from the word. I know that we need to not give up the habit of meeting together as some are doing. Instead, let us encourage one another all the more since you see that the day of the Lord, the day of your death, the day of of, of impending disaster, the day of the return of Jesus as it grows near. So why church? Jesus died for it. You're a necessary part of it. And the times that we live in demand it. So I want to conclude. You know what that means when a pastor says in conclusion? Nothing. Okay, but it, but it does mean something now. <laughs> I want to talk to you just for a second about why I love our church. I asked our staff this week, I said, help me. I said, uh, I said uh, if, if, if you weren't paid to attend, just from that point of view, what are four things that you love about our church? Not just like, what do you love? Now, let me give you some of what they said. I thought that would be more about me, but uh, really it wasn't. Um, I love that we welcome everyone with open arms, even when we can't agree with them, and that we're genuine about that. It's the staff saying this. Seacoast is encouraging and convicting. Not just one or the other. 
Uh, we're all on a journey together. I love our heart for those who don't know Jesus. I love that our church doesn't make people feel as though they need to have their act together before they can be a part of this family. I love that we don't take ourselves too seriously. I love that we take seriously our responsibility to steward our resources well, and then in parentheses they said, which is a nice way of saying, I love that we're cheap. <laughs> uh, that's from the staff point of view. And then the next one says, I love that we're generous. Now, I don't know how those two go together, but maybe because we're cheap as a staff, we're able to be generous other ways. Uh, I love that we worship week after week the most consistent, spirit-filled worship of any church I've ever attended. I love the desire of people to go into the world and be the church. I love, somebody said, that we're a mega church that doesn't have to be the center of attention. We're, we are large with a focus on the small. Somebody else said, I love the authentic, authenticity and willingness and the active encouragement to honestly wrestle with scripture, life, culture, politics, and essential and non-essentials. Here's what I like. I like that we're not all alike. <laughs> I like that we're multi-generational and multi-ethnic. And it's not just the cool kids. I mean, we got cool kids here. Um, and I'm still trying to be one of those. But there's room for the rest of us. Some of us have a lot of money. Some of us barely get by. I like that. I like that the church is not all alike. I like that we're not perfect. In fact, when we're too perfect, it creeps me out. Um, we're a people in progress. And while there are wonderful answers to prayer, there are also a lot of loose ends. And that's just the way that life is. I like the focus is on Jesus. Because he's building his church. And we get to be a part. And so here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to join us on the journey. Maybe you've never really pursued a relationship with Jesus. Let's do it together, and you can start this weekend. Maybe you've been hurt. It's a great place for you. This is a hospital for sinners, not a country club for saints. Maybe you've lost focus, or maybe you're just as excited as I am, and you're hopeful about the future of the church. Let's take the journey together. See, I see a church with all of you in it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kingdom. I thank you for your church. I thank you for the fact that you died for us while we were still sinners. And that the church wasn't a last minute kind of thing you thought up. It was a place where we could be nurtured and grow and use our gifts and encourage one another. And God, I pray that you challenge us to do that. Use these thoughts that, that I've kind of been storing up and imperfectly have shared. Use them to prick our hearts with what is possible. God, I pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.